turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. for tuning into the show today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we try to do every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word is to answer your Bible questions and hopefully fill your heart with hope and give you some encouragement that's needed in the world that we live in. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app to send your questions in if you are driving in your car. The safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of your phone by using the free KSLR mobile app. Um, Just hit the button that says call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer and we want to keep you safe. So we'd love your live calls and questions on this Tuesday program. Now, normally Tuesdays I just run right into the program, but I want to ask your indulgence for just a couple of moments while I share my heart with you a little bit. Uh, Today, July 9th, is uh, our birthday as a program. Um, We turn seven. We have been on the air for seven years. Um, Seems impossible. Um, I remember when um, KSR called me um, those years ago asking if there would be any interest in doing a program like this. Now, a couple of things you have to understand. Uh, We're a poor church. We can't afford this program. God has kept us here on the air. Um, and we had no idea what this program was going to turn into. Certainly, I never believed that it would last over a prolonged number of years. But it seems like we just got started now. It's seven years later, and um, uh, we're still thrilled to be doing the program. I want to extend a special um, note of appreciation and thanks to Michael Payne, who's the general manager of Uh, KSLR does a great, great job. He has become a good friend and a partner in this ministry. He loves this show, and and we're so grateful that he takes an interest in it. Um, We thank you for your patience and for your kindness. We thank you for taking a chance on someone like us. Most of all, we thank you that the Lord has used us to partner with you to affect the lives. We get so, uh, the lives of many people, we get so many emails and uh, so many comments and comments about what this radio program has meant. So as long as we can continue to um, keep encouraging you, as long as we can answer your questions, as long as we feel like this is still what the Lord wants to do, we are committed to doing this program. Again, there were times I didn't think it would last uh, much longer at all. Um, But here we are, and we've been doing it for seven years. To the audience, I want to say this. Thank you so very, very much. You have no idea what an honor it is, especially when I run into people 
who recognize me and then just say, your program has done this, your program has meant this. It's such an honor that you would take the time to tune in and listen and and uh, that we get the opportunity to minister not only to you, but we get the opportunity to minister with you. And finally, I'd like to thank um, Paula for uh, being my partner in this program. She's here every Thursday and uh, sometimes a couple of other days, but uh, she's been involved in this from the beginning. You know, when you do a live radio show, it's a daily radio show, uh, it really takes a sacrifice. It takes a, a commitment because... Uh, what I say to, to our people here is 4 o'clock comes at 4 o'clock every day. And she had to be willing to, to make those sacrifices with me. Thursday is our date day, and it was a day that the Lord sort of set apart for us. So uh, I told her if if we start doing this program, it means Thursday is no longer just for us. And, um, and, and she knew what God had called us to do, so she was willing to do it. And then I'd also like to thank my two producers. Uh, my producer at KSLR, Leah, she does such a great job. And uh, every time she can't be on the program, we miss her. So, Leah, thank you for your part in making this show successful. And my producer here at our church studio, that's Sam. And he knows the contribution that he's made. And he's been with us from the beginning here as we've been doing this program. So seven years old today. I know I look a bunch older than that. But we uh, were thrilled to be able to say thank you to the Lord for what he's done. 340-9585, let me get right to the questions now. Here's my first question today. It's from Jason from our email inbox. He says, hello, I was raised in a church where worship came from a songbook and everyone sang. Now I belong to a church that has a stage group that performs the first 30 minutes of every Sunday and yesterday it was a whole hour of song. I don't like song in the church this way. Am I wrong? You know, Jason, you're not wrong. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to comment on here. Your choice of the word. You have a stage group that performs the first 30 minutes of every Sunday. That's what really is important. The performance shouldn't matter. I don't like the worship um, where there's somebody on stage and we just kind of uh, clap along while they sing. Uh, I'm also, Jason, I'll be honest with you, uh, I'm not a fan, and, and even as a brand new believer, wasn't a fan of uh, everybody opening their hymn book and turn to to uh, hymn 30, and, and we're all going to sing together while a guy stands up there like a conductor and waves his arms. Um, you know, music is designed to to pull out emotions, and I think that's a good, healthy thing. But here's what's really important, Jason. Let me say it this way. If my worship team, and you've heard them on the air here, they've been on the air several times, uh, Pastor Elaine, if his purpose up there was to perform, if I picked up a vibe even once that he was up there showing off or performing, or the audience, he would no longer be my worship pastor. When we started our church, Jason, we had uh, very few people, 13 people showed up for the very first Bible study we had. I think that was the biggest crowd that we had for two years. And we didn't have worship. And it's so tempting because everybody expects worship. Everybody wants somebody's guitar, a keyboard, and they want drums, they want those things. Yeah, it was so tempting to just look for people that could play. I actually had unsaved musicians volunteer for pay to lead worship. And I just said no. And what we did at the beginning was we just had Paula sing worship. She has a beautiful voice. She actually sings on our worship team here. She has a beautiful voice. But here's the key. I know her heart. And the last thing she wants to do is perform. Now, if you were to see our worship team Jason, they, they have fun. You can tell that they are enjoying themselves and they stand in awe that God has called them to do that. But but it is true worship and I know their hearts. I know the condition of their walk with the Lord. Um, we don't want to get near that place of performing. Now, I understand as well, Jason, that a lot of men simply don't like the singing. 
But here's what I'd like you to do when you go to church next time. Now, if you're in a church that is sort of church light and they're more into entertaining you uh, than than leading you into worship, if they're not, uh, if it's not a church that's focused on teaching the word, then you need to find another church. That simple. But if the church is a good church, they're teaching the word. They're not just preaching and they're telling little topical studies, not telling stories. Um, then the next time the worship band gets on the stage, focus not on them, but on the lyrics. I'm sure they have lyrics posted behind the screen. And you, you focus on the lyric. Find Jesus and worship him. And since it's our right and our responsibility as well as our privilege to worship God, we ought to take every opportunity we can to do that. Now, I'm not a music guy. Um, I was that guy in the church who said, well, I don't know what these men are raising their hands for, and some of them are crying, I just don't get it. I wasn't going to do any of that. But here's the thing, when you fall in love with Jesus, you can't help but to worship him. And the song or the lyric isn't as important as the condition of your heart. Now, I'll agree wholeheartedly with you, Jason, that an hour is just crazy long. It always bothers me when they don't consider our ability to stand, our ability to not have to go to the bathroom. I mean, we, we've, we've got to do better than that. So you examine your heart. Only you and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, can tell you if you're wrong. But there's nothing wrong with preferring one style of worship over another. Just be sure that the important thing, your heart, is right. And then when your heart's right, then you'll be able to judge why you react to worship the way you are. Hope that helps, Jason. One final time, if you are in a church where the worship team is performing, if there's smoke on the stage and stage lights and laser lights and You've got your lead guitar player bouncing all over the stage, and you can tell they're performing. You're not in a healthy, Bible-based church. I feel your pain, Jason. I do. 340-9585 for your calls and questions. Can I say one more thing? You know, we, we do probably 20 minutes, 22 minutes of worship, four songs, we do two songs, then the announcements come, then after the announcements, two more songs. And and I wish, Jason, that we could do a little longer. I would love to do five songs on Friday nights. We do five songs. Uh, nobody's in a hurry, and we have a little more time. Um, if we had a bigger facility and we only needed to do two services, I would immediately uh, go to five songs and worship. I just think that's an important part of our ministry. Um, but any longer than that, then you're running into trouble. Here's a question from Deborah. She says, what should I say when I need to rebuke fear? Now, if I understand your question, Deborah, when you say rebuke fear, you're afraid and you're trying to, to, to sort of make it flee away. Um, I don't think you need to say anything. I don't think it's a matter of what we say with our words. And I, I think this might be sort of an indication that you too are in a church that isn't really, really healthy, isn't really um, committed to the correctness of the Bible. So when you are afraid, instead of rebuking the fear, you just have to go to Jesus and say, Lord, help me deal with this fear. I'm afraid but I don't want to be. I don't want fear to keep me from following you. So you deal with my fear, Lord. You died that I wouldn't be afraid. You know, Deborah, in the Bible, over and over and over, Old Testament and New, um, we're always being told, whether it's by angels or by Jesus, we're always being told, fear not. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over. It's a great Bible study, by the way, if you've got a, a, a computer Bible program. Just put in the, the words, do not worry or fear not. 
and just sort of look at the passages of Scripture in the context of those passages, it'll take you a while because there's a lot of them, but it's a really, really good um, study on, on how to deal with fear. So here's what you do. When you're afraid, you just say, Jesus, I'm afraid, but I trust you. And even though I'm afraid, I'm going to do this thing you're asking me to do. And then Acts 5.32 says, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The context there is always in power. And though you're afraid, you will be able to deal with the thing that you're afraid of. But Deborah, whether it's the devil or fear or worry or anxiety, any of those things, we can't speak it away. And if you're in a church that's telling you to rebuke the devil and it just... It's nonsense. We have no power nor authority to rebuke the devil. Jesus does. What we do is we stay close to him. He does the fighting. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But to resist him, we have to recognize it as him trying to take advantage of our fear. One other thing, Deborah, this is... Equally important, you know, so many of us as Christians, we feel so condemned when we're afraid. I really believe if my faith was greater, I wouldn't be afraid. We're all afraid. Fear is part of the human condition. I've explained to my church many, many times over the years that I live every day in fear. God has given me this great honor and privilege of being the pastor to some of the best people in the history of the world. And I get to watch what God is doing in and through their lives. And and I I don't want to mess anybody up. I don't want to give bad counsel. This radio show I'm fearful about because I don't want to give bad answers. And yet I realized that with the power of the Holy Spirit in me and resting upon me, then it's Jesus who's taking over. And so I might be nervous, I might be afraid. It's one of those things where by faith, we say we're going to do it anyway. So Deborah, I hope that gives you some hope. Here is a question from Ted. He says, there are Christians who do not believe that Jesus was God. The Son of God, but not God. Yet they're still Christians. I've heard you say that not believing Jesus is God disqualifies you from heaven. So why do you say that? Well, Ted, I say it because there is no such thing as a real Christian who doesn't believe that Jesus was God. A Mormon talks about Jesus. A Jehovah's Witness talks about Jesus. But they're not Christians. Because unless we believe that Jesus is God incarnate, then we're not saved. Who can forgive sins but God, the Bible says. The answer is nobody. I don't have the power to forgive sins. You don't have the power to forgive sins. Jesus, if he's not God, has no power. I want you to think about this, Ted, and this is a unique perspective, I think. If Jesus wasn't God, then God's love for you and for me, Ted, was limited. If God didn't love me enough to die for me, if he only loved me enough to send someone else to die for me, then that's not the love of an infinite God. You remember, Ted, that when Abraham was taking that three-day walk, we're, we're getting ready to start Hebrews chapter 11 on Friday nights, not this week, but the following week. And I'm so excited about that. But, but, but Abraham, for three days, he walked knowing that God had asked him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. For three days he had to wrestle with, why would you ask me to do this? This doesn't seem like you. And somewhere along that three-day journey, he realized that, God, you've made me great promises about my offspring. So if I kill him, Isaac, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. 
And then Hebrews says, figuratively, he was raised from the dead. He was rescued. Well, in that passage in Genesis, when uh, they're walking in, in Isaac, who is not a little boy, by the way, uh, uh, an older teenager by this time, could have easily run away from or overcome his father. But he realized at some point during that three-day trip, watching his father struggle with this thing that he was asked by God to do, he started looking around and he said, Father, we have everything we need for a sacrifice except the lamb. You remember what Abraham's response was? God will provide himself as a sacrifice. So if Jesus wasn't God, God the Father didn't provide himself. And we're all lost in our sins. So to say that Jesus was the Son of God, but not God, is heresy. And you cannot be a real born-again believer and not accept the deity of Jesus Christ. It was really interesting, Ted, in the first century church, when all kinds of heresies were floating around toward the end of the first century, um, uh, John uh, writes his first epistle um, dealing with this issue. But, but the Gnostics believed that Jesus was God. There was no question about that. The people that had seen him had walked with him and heard the stories. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the miraculous growth of the church. They knew he was God, but they denied his humanity. The Gnostics said, well, God can't have anything to do with flesh, so Jesus appeared to be flesh, but he really wasn't. So in the beginning, they acknowledged his deity, but denied his humanity. Now here we are, 2,000 or so years later, and just the opposite is true. What we've got is Jesus' humanity being acknowledged. There's no question that Jesus was real. He was a real human being. He really walked this earth. He really was crucified. And he really didn't stay dead. Those things are undeniable. But now these 2,000 years later, the world denies that he was God. So it's just the reverse. It's like Satan never tires of figuring out ways to confuse us. So they're not Christians if they do not believe Jesus is God. You've got to have the Jesus of the Bible in order to be saved, Ted. If you don't, you're not saved. That's one reason that we need to really pray for uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They use the same words. The language sounds the same. Uh, they'll say things like, we're saved by Jesus died for my sins. Um, but if Jesus wasn't God, we are still lost in our sin. So, Ted, thank you for the question. 340-9585, I think we're inside about four minutes now for this half of the program. Uh, here is a question from Robert. Pastor Ron, I know you usually do public baptisms, but haven't heard about anything this year. Do you have one planned? Robert, we do. It's August the 4th. Uh, we do it Sunday after our third service, we get out to uh, the river. We go to a river in Spring Branch. Uh, some beautiful lady in the church uh, offers her place to us uh, every year. And we'll literally have hundreds and hundreds of people out there. Um, um, and we, we sort of just sort of finalized the date uh, with her this year. So it is August the 4th. Uh, we'll get out there and, and meet and eat. Uh, Christians always eat when we get together. By the time I get out there, I'm so hungry because I haven't eaten since morning, very early in the morning. Uh, and then after that, we'll let people kind of share their uh, testimony briefly if they if they want to. And then we'll go stand in the water and do the baptism. So August the 4th, it's in Spring Branch, Texas. Robert, stay tuned to uh, the program and or you can go to calvarysa.com and, um, and find out uh, the details on it. But we invite you to come. Um, you don't have to be part of our church. What we want is is uh, to give people the opportunity to be obedient. And every Christian, as you know, Robert, needs to be baptized. Not to get saved. That's really critical. Not to get saved. But we do it because we are saved. It's a response to our salvation. 
Now, normally, I'm in the water for two hours or more. I don't know how many people are going to be baptized yet this year, but uh, people always get saved out there. They're, they're, some of the people who are getting baptized will bring uh, unsafe family members or friends to, to ask them to share in this day with them. And, and it's not at all rare that those people watch what's going on. Our church is going to be very active in sharing the gospel with people that they don't recognize, and people get saved every year. Uh, at our baptism. So uh, August the 4th in Spring Branch, Texas, Robert, go to calvaryessay.com and you will be able to keep up with the information. I think we're inside a minute now, so I don't want to go to another questions. So while we're awaiting your calls for the second half of the program, all you have to do is dial us 340-9585 or Toll free, you can call us at 877-630-KSLR, that's 630-5757. And Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to a program that is a gift from God. We will see you on the other side of the break. God bless you. Be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Hey, thanks for hanging with us. You are listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Phones have been quiet today, but we love your questions at 340-9585. We'll start with a couple of anonymous questions uh, for this half of the program. First one says, is it normal for Christians to fear death? Uh, Anonymous, it's normal for everyone to fear death. Death is the great enemy. And instinctively, we have this dread of death, this fear of death. So being a Christian doesn't change that. Now, I know it sounds uh, confusing. You know, we want to be with Jesus. I want to be with Jesus more than anything else. Uh, At the same time, I don't want to be with him until he's ready for me. And I, I want to fulfill every role, every plan that he has for me. And so I've got this tension. I want to be with Jesus, but I want to live. And that's perfectly normal. It is perfectly normal. I was having this conversation um, just at the end of last week with somebody who felt like his faith was failing because he thought, well, if, if I'm going to be with Jesus, I shouldn't fear death. But remember, that fear is instinctive in all of us. There should be no tension at all. All of us should want to take advantage. Paul says, redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. That ought to be something that we all long to do as long as we're here. And yet at the same moment, um, we understand that to be with Jesus, Paul said, is better by far. So um, I think most of us, rather than saying anonymous that we fear death, I think it's more accurate to say we fear the process of dying. But fear of death is absolutely normal and understandable. Don't let the devil beat you up over it for sure. Just spend your time here on earth living for Jesus, making the most of every opportunity. Here's another, the second anonymous question who uh, he or she wants to know. What my thoughts are on online online dating. Uh, I'm going to sound like a Luddite here, but my reasons are purely spiritual. Uh, I am no fan at all of online dating. I can't see where the faith in that is. Uh, to me, it seems like I'm, I'm studying in um, um, Isaiah chapter 38, 39 tomorrow. And in that study... Uh, in chapter 39, Hezekiah does what seems right to him. He takes matters into his own hands, and he fails miserably a test that was presented before him by God. I think online dating is like that. Um, again, I understand that, that young people are different than I am, and they do everything online, so it's not a big deal. But here's the thing about trying to select a partner for life. 
Do we want to do it? Do we want to let Chance do it? Do we want to let a computer decide who it is, who's fit to match up with? Or do we want to trust God? I I realize I'm not going to change people's opinions. Um, I think we take the easy way out. I think it's much easier uh, to post a picture on an online dating app and maybe not have to face the same kind of rejection that we might face, maybe not have to work so hard to invest in a relationship. But Anonymous, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm completely opposed to the concept. I think the man or the woman that's walking with Jesus who wants to be married is going to walk with Jesus right into that moment where they meet the one that Jesus has prepared for them. So not a fan, not at all. Let me also say one thing about online dating. This may shock some of you younger people, but people actually lie online. I've had so many people over the years come to me and say, I met this guy online, it was a Christian dating app, Christian dating, or online dating site. I met this girl on, on and they're no more Christians than man in the moon. People lie. They're lonely. They want companionship. To lie to get it is not a big deal. So Anonymous, not a fan. Not at all. And I would hope that you would resist it. Just walk with Jesus and you'll find the person for you. You don't have to. Ian says, if church is for Christians, why do so many preachers focus on gospel messages instead of just teaching to equip us for the work of ministry? Um, the gospel message is for Christians as well, Ian, but I think there's, there's a couple answers to your question. I think uh, we always want new people to come to church. Um, I invite our people to invite unsaved people all the time. We want to make sure people have an opportunity to get saved. So church is the place where Christians are equipped for the work of ministry, but never forget part of the work of ministry, in fact, the prime directive of ministry is to win converts and make them into disciples. Now, here's one of the good things, Ian, about what I do, or maybe I should say the way I do it here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, We teach the Bible verse by verse. Right now, we're in the Gospel of Luke, so um, we're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and there's going to be word there for unbelievers. There's going to be a lot of uh, instruction and direction for believers, for Christians. We're going to learn who Jesus is and learn to follow his example. But um, that's what teaching the Bible accomplishes. If all of our messages are designed for unbelievers, then we're going to have a very immature group of believers. And... Uh, Ian, I, I think they do it because they want their church to grow. Um, I know if you go to an old line Lutheran denominational church, which which has no concern at all about church growing, all you would hear there is gospel because their approach is to just declare the gospel. I think something else that we need to understand is that the word gospel just means good news. So when we're talking about Jesus, we're always preaching the gospel. But there's so much more meat, there's so much more application in the word than just, hey, you need Jesus, repent of your sin, and be born again. you got to teach people how and why. So I sort of agree with you, Ian, but on the other hand, I understand why they do it. We have been in the Gospel of Luke, um, I think well over a year, and we're not done yet. Um, uh, when we're done... Uh, I'm going to be going to First uh, and Second Timothy, and then after that, I'm going to be going to Revelation. Now, people that know me at home are saying, "How do you know that?" Well, that's one of the things the Lord spoke to my heart um, when we were on vacation. So, those are going to be our next Sunday morning messages, and then on um, Friday, which is New Testament, is all what we'll be teaching through through other books. So, Ian, that's the best I can do with that question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is an anonymous question. 
since I'm now saved, God bless you, Anonymous, uh, do I have to go back and try to make it right with all the people I sinned against? Uh, Anonymous, uh, yes and no. Let, Let me explain. It's always a good thing, and a very powerful witnessing tool, by the way. It's always a good thing when you have the opportunity to go back to somebody that you sinned against and say, you know what? I'm really, really sorry. Since I sinned against you, I met Jesus, and he wiped away all my sins. And so I wanted to let you know that this is Jesus who will forgive you as well. Now, what I've done against you, I'm sorry for. And people will be shocked, and some of them will get angry, and some of them will get self-righteous. But you see, you're only being faithful. That's the yes. Now, the no and I want to be careful how I word this. Um, I've had people get saved. They're struggling with sins in their past. For instance, for an example, and these are many, many, many real examples I've had. Man comes to Christ, gets saved, goes to his wife and confesses an affair that he had years ago. And he does it in the interest of being open and transparent. Well, those are the sins that we actually do more damage by confessing. We confess to God. Jesus says, I take those sins and they're as far from you as east and from west, or they're in the deepest, darkest ocean. Well, if that's the case, if God remembers them no more, why do we want to remember them? I think a lot of times, Anonymous, when we confess those kind of sin, we do it to relieve our guilt without thinking about the damage that's done to the other. I can't tell you how many husbands and wives, depending on which one's doing the repenting, have come to me and say, yeah, now he's all free and he's his conscience is clear, but, but I can't stop thinking about it and it's just wrecked my life. So those are the things that you have to measure. And I think those are things that need to be led by the Spirit. But every time you get an opportunity to go to somebody you sinned against, and tell them about Jesus and what he's done, and ask them to forgive you. It doesn't matter whether they forgive you or not. That's not up to you. But you get a chance to witness the goodness of God. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Anonymous. Let's go to Cindy calling on line one. Cindy, you're our first caller today. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about this, and it's been on my mind all day. It doesn't have anything to do with being saved. The only way we can be saved is through Jesus. But what I'm wondering about is when Adam and Eve were first created, they weren't, I don't think they were a certain race or anything. We don't know what race they were. And after they were expelled out of the garden, I'm, I'm wondering if there were different races then, but, you know, because of DNA. But then the flood happened, which wiped everybody out. So where where did the DNA come, and, and, and how did it happen that there would be the different races? Because there would have to be two of each race to, to you know, continue the, uh, you know, their, their race. And mm-hmm. that's my question for today, and I'll get off the radio and, or off the phone and listen to you. That's a great question. It's, it's hard to explain. I'm not a scientist or a biogeneticist. Gen- um, but but we have the explanation in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Um, everybody could communicate with everybody else and what they decided to do, and that's why the Tower of Babel story is so important. Uh, remember, by this time, everybody would have remembered the flood. And even though God promised never to flood the earth again as, as judgment, um, people wanted to sin, and they wanted to sin in such a way that they could avoid the wrath of God. So they would get together, they would plot together, and their result was they're going to build this tower, Babel, that's called the Tower to the Heavens. And what they were really trying to do is this, they're saying, and if you look very carefully at the way they're, they're, they're putting the bricks and stuff together, they're baking the bricks, they're trying to make them waterproof. And they build this huge tower, and basically what they're saying, okay, God, we're going to keep sinning, and if you flood the earth, you flood the earth, but now we're so high, this tower is so high, we're still going to be safe. And God says, now I see what man is capable of. If they can get together, they're going to plot this evil against me. 
and he couldn't put up with it anymore. So what he did is he confused their language. Now, when he confused their language, um, they would be talking to people and suddenly they couldn't understand them. So what they would do is they'd find others whose language they could understand, and then they would gather. There would be this exodus into other parts of the world. And that's what they did. They spread out with people just like them. And then over the course of years, now we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, Cindy, um, the gene pool would become more and more and more limited. And so you would get people who would look more and more like one another. And they would immigrate to different parts of the world. You'd find somebody over hundreds of years that, that would have dark skin, others that would have lighter skin. But in the beginning... Uh, we don't know what race they were. We don't know what they looked like. Uh, all we know is that they were perfect. Whatever God's ideal for perfection is, Adam and Eve in their unfallen glory were perfect. When man messed that up, when sin entered the world, that's when the change began to come. And so you can imagine that if uh, you had a hundred people that went away because they could only understand each other, and they developed their own little world to live in. Well, pretty soon the babies that would be produced by those hundred people would all look alike. And that's where the races came from. And they spread out to different parts of the world. Cindy, thank you. You always ask the best question. Here is a question from Rocky. This will be an easy one, Rocky. Rocky says, Pastor Ron, what passages justify infant baptism? None of them. There is no justification for infant baptism. You know what's happened with infant baptism over the years? It started very early in the history of the church. Uh, is, is churches and groups of people develop traditions? And they would lean on those traditions instead of leaning on the Word of God. And so you you can't find a single passage in Scripture that justifies or validates, is a better word, infant baptism. Baptism is a decision that has to be made of the free will of the person being baptized. It's a public proclamation of their faith in Christ. A baby, an infant, can't make that public proclamation. Now, we've had young kids that we baptized, and they understood what it was, and they knew what it was. But an infant, you just sprinkle water, you go through this ceremony, and, um, you know... Unfortunately, people think, parents think, churches teach, some churches, that, well, if you're baptized as an infant, you're in the club, you're saved. But that's simply not the case. Rocky, what we do here at Calvary Chapel is we dedicate children. We do believe there's biblical uh, validation for that. When um, Hannah was asking for a child and couldn't have one and was frustrated and cried out to God, um, he gave her a child, Samuel. He uh, he was a prophet, going to be a prophet. God was preparing Hannah to be the mother to a very special child. But, but Hannah dedicated that baby to the Lord because she promised him, if you'll give me a baby, I'll, I'll give my firstborn to you. So that's why we do baby dedications. Um, when I do baby dedications, I've done many, 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 many of them, Rocky. Uh, I'm as much dedicating the family the extended family and the church family to help raise that child to know who Jesus is, to show that child the love of God. But that's all it is, dedication. At some point, they're going to have to make a choice of their own free will to walk with Jesus. When we find churches, whether it's the Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, or uh, the Lutheran Church that, that practices infant baptism, it is nothing more than religious tradition that has no value. So, Rocky, that's the answer to your question. Angela has a question. Pastor Ron, can you explain 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18? I will, but let me read verse 17 and 18 so I can set the context for you, Angela. Here's what it says. It says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church who direct affairs of church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And here's your verse, Angela. 
For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, First Timothy, of course, is one of the pastoral epistles. And in this particular passage, he's talking about those that we would call pastors of the churches in the first century. Uh, it extends down to today. And what he's saying is, uh, quoting the Old Testament, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. He's using it to justify um, the need, even the privilege, to pay your pastor a livable wage so that he can continue to minister unencumbered by having to worry about getting a second job or a third job, uh, unencumbered by what kind of job and how much he should make. So basically he's saying that if you've got a pastor and he's faithful, teach the word, pay him. And then he talks about double honor. That's a, in verse 17. Uh, that, that's a direct reference to money. It's not double honor like we bow down before him. But, but um, if his work is teaching and preaching, then pay him. Now, it's always a sticky subject, Angel, when you talk about pastor's pay. I have very strong feelings on this. Uh, I don't get paid a lot. Uh, I, I think that the guideline for pastoral uh, pay ought to be the, the, the mean average of the people that he ministers to. Uh, I can't minister to somebody in poverty effectively if I'm living a wealthy life or living the life of a rich man. So I think we serve the people that God assigns us to, and as it relates to our pay, then we should make about what the average income is in that church, and we should be content with that. Um, part of our problem when it comes to pastoral pay, Angela, is that we have so many people, pastors, who get paid such ridiculous amounts of money. When I turn on uh, my news feed for Google or AOL or some of them, I get this pop-up that comes up regularly. It says, the 10 richest pastors in, in the United States. And it's, it's embarrassing. I have friends who are Calvary Chapel pastors who make embarrassing amounts of money. I don't know how they justify it to their churches. I certainly don't know how they're going to justify it to God. But the fact remains that we should get paid. Now, I had somebody on this program not long ago, Angela, who said, well, don't you think pastors ought to work for free? The answer, clearly, based on this teaching in First Timothy, a pastoral epistle, is no, they shouldn't work for free. I don't know anybody that works for free, unless they work for me, and they don't have much choice. But why would we expect our pastor to work for free? Why would we, be, why would we begrudge our pastor? a comfortable, average living. So uh, I, I know it could sound uh, a little duplicitous coming from me because I am a pastor, uh, but um, the Bible is pretty clear. Pay your pastors a livable wage, and uh, God will bless. So, Angela, I hope that helped. Uh, Raymond says, Did Jesus make a mistake in Matthew chapter 24 when he said, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. It appears he was wrong, and that raises concerns about whether or not we can trust the Bible. Raymond, whenever you have to ask if Jesus made a mistake, you know you're wrong. No, Jesus didn't make a mistake. I think the mistake is made in our misunderstanding of this passage. Jesus in Matthew 24, it's the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about the time of the end of the age. They ask him, when are these things going to happen? When's the end of the age? When are you going to establish your kingdom? They're curious. They don't understand it either. His disciples don't. So Jesus says, well, here are the signs. And he talks about the signs in the sky. Uh, the moon will turn to blood. The, the skies will be darkened. Uh, the prophecy of Joel is, is, is immediately comes to mind. Uh, then he says, the generation that sees those things happen will not pass away before the end. Now, when he was talking to Peter and James and John and the other disciples, we know obviously that they died. He wasn't talking to them. And we read it, this generation, the people he's talking to will not pass away. That's a, that's a faulty understanding. What he's saying is, the generation that is alive, when these signs happen, will see the very end. 
and they will be alive when Jesus returns. They will see him come, set his feet on the Mount of Olives. So he's not saying this generation. There's so much discussion about, well, a generation could mean 40 years, a generation in some uh, rabbinic scholars is is 100 years. So maybe it's 40 years, maybe it's 100 years. That's to miss the whole text. The generation alive, Jesus, when you see these things, it's this generation that will not die before it sees the end, before it sees my return. So Raymond Jesus did not make a mistake. He can't make a mistake. You and I can, and we do. But Jesus never did. So I hope that really helps. See if I have a one-minute question. Oh, here's a one-minute question. This is easy. It's from Steele. Steele says, Pastor Ron, would you consider debating with some local prosperity teachers? Steele, my answer is no, I wouldn't. Uh, debating is nonsense. Uh, we're not trying to debate. We're not trying to argue. Uh, we're, we're trying to, to share Jesus, the real Jesus. And prosperity teachers aren't doing that. Why would I want to argue with somebody who is misrepresenting my Lord? So the answer is no, I wouldn't consider debating people on anything. I know that we like debates. We now have a platform on YouTube and other things. People say, well, well, you could set up debates with this person and that person. Um, and, and I just wouldn't do it. I was actually asked one time by this radio station um, before my program started if I debate a witch. And I said, nope. I just want to tell people about Jesus. So I hope that helps. Well, there's the music. Now we've started our eighth year here at The Word to Stand Up for Life. Thank you for your commitment to the program. Thank you for your questions. It is a privilege and an honor. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.